0: For me, it began in 1992 with an ending. I was five years old and happened upon a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. From that moment forward, the Man of Steel has been my favorite character, and now on this podcast, I'm exploring my fandom and examining the creative visions that have shaped The Last Son of Krypton across media for over 80 years. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me this week is the last son of Long Island, Scott Honig. (laughs) Hey, Anthony, how you doing? Scott, welcome. So we are here to discuss the first half of the Jeff Loeb, Joe Kelly, Superman run from the early 2000s. And I've been very excited about this. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And... You know, it's funny, as I was sort of mapping out the sequence of episodes for this podcast, I very, very briefly toyed with the idea of uh, going chronologically, and then I I quickly abandoned that. And in deciding, you know, kind of really where to start with these deep dives, because in our premiere episode, it was more of a general overview, it was a fun discussion about being a Superman fan generally. Uh, But now as we really start to dig in here, I was thinking, well, okay, where do I start? And it did not take me long at all um, to come to this run, because this has long been uh, my favorite period uh, of reading the Superman titles. And so it made perfect sense uh, to start with, you know, not, not just one, but two episodes on this run uh, from the early 2000s. So we have a lot to unpack and a lot to get through. But uh, I was curious, when did you first uh, experience this run? Were you reading it as it originally came out? Did you come to it later?
1: So I experienced it shortly after it had begun. Um, it, was, it was in 2000, and I was almost primarily a Marvel reader at the time. And I heard that in, at Marvel, uh, the X-Men books were um, taking advantage of the fact that it was an election year, and they were running Senator Kelly for president on an anti-mutant platform. And I thought, that's really interesting. Uh, And then over at DC, I heard they were running Lex Luthor for president. And I thought, that's really interesting, possibly more so. Uh, And then as I was reading the X-Men books, spoilers, uh, they actually assassinated Senator Kelly before the election. And so they never had a chance to explore the, the story possibilities of that character becoming president and how that would impact the mutant population. But, DC actually went through with it. They actually pulled the trigger and elected Lex Luthor president. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So at that point, I hopped on and I started reading both forward and slightly backward to the beginning of that run at the same time.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. The president Lex storyline, we'll actually get to that in the next episode. Uh, That's in the second half of of this period that we're talking about. But yeah, that was definitely one of the highlights. And, you know, in a second, listeners, I'll, I'll give you the uh, the breakdown of issues that we're talking about. But generally speaking, when we're referring to this era, uh, some of the major storylines of the time were uh, Y2K, Critical Condition, Emperor Joker, President Lex, as we said, Return to Krypton, and Our Worlds at War. So those were sort of the like the big tentpole events um, of this period of time. And, you know, this was a run I, and I think other fans and critics refer to this as the the Loeb-Kelly era. Uh, Loeb wrote the main Superman title. Uh, Joe Kelly wrote action comics. There were, of course, two other titles. And I don't call this the Loeb-Kelly uh, <laughs> run uh, at the expense of the others. But uh, again, I think that's generally how that period is sort of known. And it very much seems like those were the guys who were really driving uh, a lot of the storylines at the time. Um, as far as specific issues, so... Uh, this wave of teams, uh, they kick things off with uh, Superman, uh, number 151, Adventures of Superman, 573, Man of Steel, uh, number 95, and Action Comics, number 760. Uh, So for this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about uh, approximately 10 issues uh, of each of those titles. And then in the next episode, we'll cover, uh, again, about uh, another 10 issues or so of, of each of the titles. I have to say that this run... Rereading it <laughs> very much made me uh, appreciate the passage of time, because if you had asked me, you know, when did this run start, you know, rationally, objectively, like, I know this was, I know they came on at the very end of 99, one of their first big storylines was Y2K, like, again, rationally, I know when it started, but I think in my head, like, for all these years, I've always just thought of it as like, oh, yeah, that run I really liked, like, you know, like, from a few years ago. <laughs> And when I sat down for this reread, um, it just really hit me because I was, you know, I was reading the Superman books at the time, as I've discussed before, I started with Death of Superman. So I was a nineties kid, man. Like I read I read all the Superman titles throughout the nineties. They were a mixed bag. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll dive into that period on the podcast in the future, but, uh, suffice it to say, by the time this, you know, new crop of teams came on the books, they they needed some fresh blood. They needed a little bit of a, of a revamp. Uh, you know, the teams that had been working, and, you know, no disrespect to any of them because they they carry those books for many years. But um, a lot of those creators had been doing it for a while, and I think it's hard to sustain at a certain level, you know, over that period of time. And I also think that, you know, the, the law of diminishing returns was at play there. You know, they had such huge success in the early 90s with Death of Superman. And you saw over the course of the rest of the 90s a lot of status quo altering, events you know designed to match the success of that and and nothing ever did and so we got Superman Red Superman Blue you know the electric powers uh, you know all, all sorts of things so by the time this team came on I think it was uh, it was a welcome change of pace but again when I sat down for this reread uh, it just really hit me that I was 12 I was a 12 year old boy <laughs> when I was initially reading this run and you know it was fascinating to revisit it uh, from, uh, you know, the perspective of an adult. And it's like, my life is completely different now, you know, the difference between 12 and 33, you know, I'm a husband, a father, I do these podcasts, I've made documentaries, like it's, you know, it's just completely different. And I was sort of debating with myself uh, coming into this episode. I was like, you know, because I wanted to say that my reread lived up to all of my, expectations and, uh, completely conjured all of the magic, uh, that I felt when I was reading it as a 12 year old. And that would be disingenuous. I can't say that, but I, I very much enjoyed my reread. It was, I was entertained. I had fun. It was, uh, it was an interesting process for sure. And there's a lot that I think is really great about this run. Others, other aspects of it that I think uh, could have been a little bit stronger, but overall, um, it, it still maintains its place as my favorite run, um, but I wanted to ask you. And again, like I said, we'll, you know, we're going to get specific as we talk about issues and arcs and all of that. But big picture question, uh, you know, just overall, what was the reread experience like for you?
1: So it's a little bit different because I'm I'm a firm believer, and 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 comics fans have talked about this issue. So I'm by no means the first to bring it up, but when you're at that that age, that 12, 13, 14 year old period in your life, whatever comics you discover, those are the greatest comics of all time. They're the ones that pull you into the medium. They're the ones that sort of form all of your sensibilities about what comics are, what they can be. Um, So I was 23 when I read this for the first time. So I had already been reading comics at that point for over a decade. Um, like I said, uh, you know, X-Men was sort of my gateway drug. So I, you know, I was always aware of Superman. Superman was always in my life. I always loved Superman, but I wasn't a regular reader of the comics. So when I entered it here, I certainly was excited to see what the character was in the early 2000s, how he had evolved, what kinds of stories could be told there. Um, but, but I, it wasn't they weren't formative comics for me. So um, I remember reading those first couple of uh, Jeff Loeb, Ed McGuinness comics. And this is Ed McGuinness very shortly after he'd broken into the industry. You know, he'd done Deadpool with Joe Kelly over at Marvel. And then th- I think this was his next project uh, after he left that. And I just thought what a breath of fresh air, his art style brought to Superman. It, it, it evokes very closely, Joe Schuster. Like there, there's something in the face, the real squinty eyes and that real square jaw that I saw as being sort of that original design. But it was, a, it was such a modern sensibility at the same time. And that's what Superman is, right? He's a character who you know, he's been around longer than any other superhero. And so he is very much a relic. But he also always manages to be reinvented and stay current and, and relevant. Um, sometimes better than others, but um, I was completely, completely enthralled by this run when I first read it, uh, even though I was seeing it through an adult's eyes. Doing the reread, um, it was super fun. Um, I, I loved the Ed McGuinness art again. Um, not all the stories, I think, landed for me as well as they did that first time, um, but it was definitely still fun.
0: Good. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed. Otherwise, it would have been a miserable experience. Uh, You know, it would have been a miserable experience otherwise, because, uh, again, this was not a a light reading project. And so, you know, I I very much appreciate, you know, you 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 taking it on for sure. And, um, you know, so it sounds like even though we came to the initial run, you know, at, at different points, um you know uh, again seem to have somewhat similar experiences revisiting it now i'm really glad that you brought up ed mcginnis because you know um when i've when i do episodes like this uh, obviously this podcast has just started but when i've done other book club podcasts you know i always tend to really focus on on the writing side but you know this is a visual medium and the art is is a you know huge component of all of this and i too uh loved and still love uh, what ed mcginnis brought and You know, so Loeb started with issue one fifty one. He did uh, three issues with uh, Mike Mike McCone, and then Ed McGinnis came on with one fifty four, which was part of the Y two K storyline. And, you know, he would go on to draw, you know, with the with the exception of the occasional fill in, he would draw the rest of the Loeb run, and then he would go on to do two out of the four arcs on Superman Batman that Loeb did. So you know, for, for a good few years. I mean, in my mind, he really was the definitive Superman artist of the time. And when I think of that era, I think of him and I think you summed up his, his style perfectly. And, you know, like, and you know, again, describing art is really not uh, my area of expertise. But like again, the the thick lines, like everyone drawn like a like a linebacker, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes. And like you said, sort of evoking you know the the earlier style of the character. Um, but I love I love his stuff so much, and that's definitely that was definitely one of the highlights of uh, of revisiting it was uh, was his art for sure. Yeah,
1: I mean, I remember I remember starting this run and seeing that it was Mike McCone, and I had forgotten that, that McGinnis wasn't there right at the beginning. And look, McCone is a perfectly established and very competent artist. He's a great storyteller. His line work is quite nice. Um, but when you get to 154 and Ed McGinnis takes over, there's just something that happens, and it really elevates the title. I think, I think you can even notice the difference in Loeb's writing that even his writing gets stronger because he's now working with this new artist. And, and I, I just, it, it, for me, it made a world of difference and I don't think any of the other artists, no disrespect to them at all. Um, I don't think any of the other artists on any of the books in this era, even, even touch what Ed McGuinness was doing.
0: Yeah, I would agree. No, for sure. And, and like I said, I mean, when I, when I, think of that period of time, it's, it's McGinnis's art that immediately comes to mind. So, um, again, I, I gave uh, the, a breakdown of the issues that we're going to be talking about. And as we said, uh, Jeff Loeb was the writer on the Superman title. Joe Kelly took over Action Comics. Uh, Mark Schultz was on Man of Steel. He had actually started... Uh, about half a year earlier. So he was a holdover from <laughs> from the, the previous teams. But again, he had only just started um, and and they kept him on uh, for this new iteration. And um, so those three guys would write their titles for all of the issues that we're going to be talking about over these next two episodes. Adventures of Superman was kind of all over the place because we started yeah. <laughs> with uh, Stuart uh, Eminem and a young Mark Miller uh, sharing writing duties and they only did a few issues. And then, uh, J.M. DeMatteis took over and he was on there for, again, a few issues. And then, uh, a little bit before our worlds at war, Joe Casey would take over. So that book I think is the hardest of the four to try to pin down. But, um, -hmm. it was interesting because I, I remember this as a kid and, uh, I was reminded of it when I, when I did my reread. The the whole idea with these four teams and the four titles, right, because we had four monthly Superman books, was that each one would really have its own flavor. And so, for example, Man of Steel was billed as the sci-fi book. And it lived up to that. I mean, you know, Schultz really leaned into the Fortress and the Eradicator. Uh, he made John Henry Irons Steel, a prominent uh, supporting cast member. And it, it, it's interesting because, uh, how do I put this? That's not my favorite flavor of Superman, but I very much admire the identity that they gave that book, and it was Doug Monkey on the art, gorgeous. So it's like, I so admire, like, they gave that book such a distinct identity, and I'm glad that that exists. Like, if you have four Superman books, you should have one that really leans into the Kryptonian origins and all of that. It's just not necessarily
1: my favorite. Yeah, what was difficult for me at the time, too, of, of reading Superman in this period was, you know, when I got in, I went all in. You know, it wasn't just it was it was the Loeb McGinnis that pulled me in. But, you know, because the issues sort of connected at key moments to all the others because of storylines that ran through all the titles, I was buying all of them. Um, and
0: that's how they get you
1: that as a marketing strategy. It's quite it's quite brilliant. But um, but seeing them again now, um, I realize that it actually makes for a little bit of a disjointed read um, because I think obviously when you're when you're publishing books in this way, they have to be largely editorially driven because you have four different creative teams that sometimes are left to do their own stories, but then every few months are brought together to do a crossover where each issue leads into the next. Um, and, I think that you can you can do that and have it be edit- editorially driven but you can't then at the same time also have your creative teams go off and tell their own flavor of story because that sci-fi thing that Mark Schultz is doing may not may not connect as well to the cinematic kind of storytelling that that Jeff Loeb is doing for instance. Um, so I feel like you almost can't have it both ways. You you really would have to decide you're either going to let your creative teams do what they want and tell their own stories or make sure that everybody is kind of similar in flavor that at least there's some sort of house style of writing.
0: You hit the nail on the head and I, and I couldn't have said it better myself. And, you know, I said before that overall, I enjoyed my reread, you know, for the most part and where maybe I didn't enjoy it so much. There were there were a couple of stories and we'll talk about them or I guess I'll say now, you know, Emperor Joker, for example, was an example of a story that I thought the idea was better than the execution. There were a couple of instances like that um, and, uh, you know, we'll get into greater depth as we move forward, but, <laughs> you know, there were so there were definitely a few storylines where I said, oh, this is so close to being great. Mm. It's a great idea and I just thought the execution could have been a little bit stronger and, you know, it's very easy with the benefit of you know hindsight and twenty years to look back and say, "Hey, they should have done this." Nevertheless, that's what we're here to do. But, <laughs> but uh, the, the other the other thing that made it challenging was exactly what you just said. Um, and I think had I been able to just take the lobe issues, you know, the, those were my favorite of of this entire period. And had I been able to just take those and read them in a vacuum. I think I would come away with a different impression of, of that period. And and again, it's not even that, um, you know, there was anything bad about the other books. Like I said, with Man of Steel, it just wasn't necessarily the flavor that I necessarily gravitate toward. But as you hit on, it's just the, the way the stories were told. You know, the books all utilized the triangle numbers that were employed during the 90s, right? So they gave you the reading order uh, for each year, uh, again, to help you keep track of the four titles. And there were certainly plenty of instances where the books did their own things. And for example, the first three issues or so of, of each of the titles during this run kind of did their own thing. Certain subplots carried over, but they kind of did their own thing. And then they came together for Y2K. Uh, so again, there were some instances where they stood on their own. But overall, like you said, it you know it was editorially driven and they were crafting a weekly Superman adventure. And... You know, again, unless, like you said, you have that unified house style that everyone's following, uh, it can make for a disjointed reading experience as much as, you know, I think this group of creators and I think the creators in the 90s, too. I mean, I think they did as strong a job as you could of coordinating, but it's just the nature of it. and. You know, I would have to imagine for, you know, Mark Schultz, for example, like the guy's always stuck writing part three of, you know, of any story. And like I said, you know, he used uh, steel a lot in his run. So it's like whenever there was a crossover and he had part, it's like all of a sudden in part three, steel plays a big role, you know, <laughs> so,
1: uh, right. so every part three is the steel part.
0: Yeah. So I think. <laughs> You know, so again, as, as I'm evaluating this, I think, um, like I said, there were a couple of stories where, uh, you know, I, I just felt they were so close, but they missed the mark a little bit. Um, and then again, just the nature of the publishing of Superman comics that you had these four titles, um, you know, varying flavors and qualities, and they fit together well enough, but it didn't always make for, you know, the the smoothest reading experience.
1: Right. And, and one of the things that actually uh, was reinforced in this reread was that there was a reason why the Loeb-McGinnis issues were my favorites of the run. Um, I was I was hoping that that would remain the same, and it really did. Um, not only was McGinnis' art, I thought, just sort of head and shoulders above, above the other artists working on the books, um, but Loeb was doing things in his writing that I wasn't seeing in many of the other books. The other books seemed to me to be... More, much more plot driven, and Lo, while he's sort of known for being this very cinematic writer, which makes sense because he came to comics from the film world, um, he he wrote character moments so well, those quieter character moments. Um, one of the one of the trademarks that I noticed, which I didn't notice when I was reading it month to month, is that he will often have his issues narrated by a supporting character. And oftentimes it was a supporting character who actually wasn't directly involved in the plot. So by doing that, you could have the plot advance as it's going to, but he still gets to explore characters like Lois or Jimmy or Perry White or Pa Kent in ways that he wouldn't have gotten to otherwise or would have had to have shoehorned into the plot in some way to allow their character to develop. And so by having them narrate it, and sometimes they were narrating not directly what was happening in the story, but they were narrating some kind of parallel other story. Um, There's a particular issue um, where uh, I want to say it was Lois talking about a tornado. And the metaphor of the tornado applied to what was happening in the literal plot, but but she was really talking about it more in terms of, you know, being in Kansas and that, you know, tornado alley and all that. And I thought that was super skillful in ways that I just didn't see necessarily in the other writers. Again, I'm not, you know, by no means am I trying to knock anybody who who worked on these books. Like you said, they were doing the absolute best job with with what they had at the time and and writing monthly comics, I have to imagine, is just an impossible grind. Um, But, That's, I think, what makes it so much more special when you see issues that rise above what you think a monthly comic is capable
0: of. I've had a big smile on my face the entire time that you were saying that because that is hands down my favorite aspect of this period of the comics and of Loeb's issues in particular, exactly what you just said. I think that you know having those narrators, letting you see Clark and Superman through the lens of the supporting cast not only humanizes Clark and you know maybe gives you greater insight than you would get if you were just following his adventure, but, as you said, and I hadn't really thought about this, but yeah, it is also a fantastic way to give a supporting character more play, you know where otherwise, like you said, it would be hard to necessarily have you know a whole Pa Kent issue, right. Um, so I think that it, it really did serve a number of purposes, but, uh, that I was going to bring that up and I'm so glad you did because that, uh, that was really the standout of, of this reread. And, you know, we're, while we're not covering Superman for all seasons in this episode specifically, we'll get to that in another episode down the line when we cover the, the various tellings of the Superman origin. But, you know, that was what Jeff Loeb wrote, uh, Superman wise before taking over the Superman title. And it was this year, for anyone who's not familiar, you know, this year one um, uh, retelling of of uh, you know, the mm-hmm. Superman origin story. Not even so much the origin story. It was really just the seasons of, of year one sort of thing. But each issue... And, and like, I've
1: heard tell that it's also one of the inspirations for the Smallville show, which exactly. I know you and I are both fans of.
0: Yes. And in that, you know, each issue is narrated by a different person in Clark's life. And so Loeb carried that over to this title. And... Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right. You don't get that in, in the other titles, you know, certainly not with the frequency or the depth, you know, that you do uh, with the Loeb issues. And so I would say, you know, Lois is his most frequent narrator. Uh, she definitely does the first few issues. and uh, But again, we do get episodes from the perspective, like you said, of Perry White and Pa Kent, uh, Ray Palmer, The Atom, Green Lantern, you know, and these issues in particular that uh, we're going to be covering today. Uh, those are our primary narrators. We even hear from Clark in one of the ep- in one of episodes, one of the issues yes. uh, in the form of a letter uh, that he's writing to Ma and Pa Kent. And I think the introspection that is uh, that that is allowed through the use of this device again, I just think sets it apart. And when I think back, you know, to this run, um, you know, I don't know that it's so much the plots that uh, you know I that I remember so much. You know, again, I yes, I know you know the big events of the time, but. You know, when I think about what I enjoy most, it, it really is getting to see my favorite character through uh, through these other characters. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, you know, a couple of the moments that, that really stood out to me, um, that, that I think capture what you just described, um, is you know, a a kryptonite irradiated Superman Teaming up with Batman to find Lois, who at that point is missing. Parasite had been impersonating her for for a period, and and that that way of externalizing an internal conflict like that, where he is his health is declining rapidly, and he will not give up on finding Lois. Um, to be able to do that, I, I think is is a testament to why this character remained relevant at this particular time. He's still relevant today, but, you know, as far as our reading, he was, that moment to me illustrated why he's such an important character and how you can tell compelling stories with him, even when he's not punching a villain who is of approximate, you know, similar strength, you know, whether it's, you know, a doomsday or a Mongol or a parasite, you know, those are fun. I love to watch, especially Ed McGinnis, draw Superman punching Parasite or any other, you know, massive, massive bad guy. But the internal conflicts to me were way more interesting. Um, and Loeb does those so, so well.
0: Yeah. That Batman issue, funny enough, that was actually a, a Joe Kelly action issue. But that one. Oh, yes. With Terry Nord on the art. Yeah. But that one 100% stood out to me as well. and. You know, that immediately preceded the critical condition storyline where the super family has to miniaturize and enter Superman's body to try to uh, eliminate the poisoning. And... Well, that's all well and good, and it was a fun enough storyline. It's that issue with Batman that stands out so much more for exactly the reasons that you articulated. So, uh, yeah, actually, so we do have to give credit to Joe Kelly there too. He did exactly what you know we were talking about uh, as far yes. as what what Loeb was doing., uh, but again, Loeb really was doing that on on such a regular basis, uh, right off the bat in his first issue. And just as a quick side note, you know, because I know as we're as we're discussing this, I'm sure there are plenty of people listening who uh, have read this run, hopefully. Uh, but there might be people who haven't. And for anyone who hasn't, uh, most of the issues are available on the DC Universe app. Not all of them. And there are some glaring omissions. <laughs> there, yes. it's including some of, there are some key uh, one shots like the Y2K special and then the Lex 2000 issue later on that are really essential reading that are not on there. But uh, DC recently started uh, recollecting this period of comics. The, it's a line of trades called City of Tomorrow and yes. i know the first one is out the second one i think is coming out very shortly hopefully dc continues uh, occasionally you know they they're, they're t- more than occasionally their their lines of trades uh, just kind of stop but uh, it is being recollected uh, they had collected and these are the ones that i have they had they had collected most of the run they had they skipped a few issues but they collected most of the run years and years ago all of those trades are out of print now um, but that's what i have and i have the app as well so between the two of them i was able to get everything
1: you and I read it exactly the same way. I have all those th- these trades yep. that <laughs> that uh, are done by storyline, um, and I'm glad to see that they're re- recollecting them uh, because one of the baffling things about this trade, these trades, the series of trades, is that um, you really can't tell what issue you're reading uh, I know. <laughs> when you when you begin it, because they don't start it with the cover or the issue number or anything. They put sort of a cover gallery at the end. Um, so you really kind of have to piece together. I, I know when I get to a Lope McGinnis, okay, this is obviously Superman issue. When I get to Joe Kelly's, you know, it's action. and But it, it's sort of maddening to try to make your way through, through these trades. And I, and I have no idea what the thought process was in putting these together.
0: Uh. I guess. Counter to what you and I, you know, just spent a few minutes discussing, I think maybe they felt it's such a seamless reading experience (laughs) going from title to title. I don't know. I don't really know what the thought process was to, to at least, I mean, even just so that you can, because I know some of the later trades, I believe, had a proper cover gallery where you got the full size of the cover. But I think the earliest trades, you just got they were like a little bit bigger than thumbnails. And so even right. just so you can enjoy the art, it would have been great to have <laughs> the full covers in there. Uh,
1: that, that was where I was going with, you know, I, 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 that's, that's the experience I would have wanted. And now I'm, I'm debating whether or not I want to buy those new collections. I think I might because for as nice as these are and for as long as I've had them, I just think it'll be a, a better reading experience down the road when I do want to revisit it again or if I want to give it to somebody else to read. Um, But, you know, since we since we're sort of going to those trades um, and right at the beginning, I had a question for you. And I don't know if you know the meaning of this. The first issue that Lobro 151 that's illustrated by Mike McCone is called We're Back. Yep. The title of the story is We're Back. I couldn't figure out for the life of me what they're back from. (laughs) So it was there anything to what
0: that's referring to yeah so this was the return of the daily planet uh what had happened to the daily planet prior to this so and actually I'm glad you you asked that because that actually brings up a point that I wanted to make which is to say you know credit to and whether this was editorial or the writers i I don't know where that line is but you know kudos to them for not just hitting a reset button uh, as much as You know, it it was really seen as a revamp at the time. Um, Again, not a continuity, you know, reset or anything like that, but it was like new creative teams coming on, fresh start, fresh start, all that. But they did, they didn't ignore what came before. And for example, there are numerous references in the earliest issues to a very recent storyline where Superman had been... uh, not fully mind controlled, but influenced by one of his enemies. And he declared himself king of the world. And it was, it was this whole thing that happened just a few months before, uh, these new teams came on and there were numerous references to that. So that that was one of the threads that they kind of carried on. Um, but yeah, so Loeb's first issue, it opens with Superman retrieving the daily planet globe from the junkyard and returning it, uh, to its, its position of, of glory. And so that's what the title refers to. If memory serves, and again, I have not gone back and reread those some of those late 90s stories, but <laughs> I believe Lex bought the Daily Planet and closed it. Uh, as as okay. simple as that. And um, and so yeah, this was this was the return of of the Daily Planet. And kind of on that note, I mentioned before, you know, each book was was to have its own, you know, little little focus. And I think for the Superman book, it was, you know, really classic, back to basics, look at the character, strong focus on Superman and the core Daily Planet supporting cast. Uh, again, Adventures of Superman is is funny because for the life of me, again, when I was heading into this reread, I was like, "What was their focus supposed to be?" But in the DC yeah. app, in the DC app, uh, if you read the description, it's basically the solicitation copy. And according to that, the idea was it's Superman through the eyes of ordinary people. And there okay. there is an in- Like I think the first issue is actually not even collected in the trade, but there's an elderly gentleman. Uh, whose property is coveted by Lex for development, and you know Superman has to help him keep his keep his house. So it, I mean, I guess it sort of uh, you know accomplished its its stated goal. But again, there was there was so much turnover in the writers of that book that uh, again it was hard to pin down a, a strong hook for that title. Man of Steel was sci fi, and then action. Yes. You know, I don't know how you would describe action. I mean, I kind of look at it as you know it was a little uh, a little fresher, edgier, sexier, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, that
1: character and Contadora is is I think uh, representative of that sexier right. uh, kind of look. Um, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Um, was it? Was it? Do you think that they were trying out that flavor to see if they could push Superman more in that direction to kind of you know capitalize on you know the fact that we were now in the 21st century and other comics of the time perhaps had been moving.
0: In that direction could be. I mean, your you know, your guess is as good as mine. I um you know, I certainly don't remember reading anything about that per se. Uh, it might have just been you know Joe Kelly's you know style, and they and they leaned into that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. But so that was sort of the, again, those were the stated intentions as far as what each book would you know would sort of uh, tackle. And again, I think for the most part they lived up to it. So, uh, yeah, right at the beginning, uh, we have the return of the Daily Planet and our first issue by Loeb. Uh, you know, narrated by Lois, and I think you know, one of the things that I loved, and it's extremely prominent in that first issue, but you you continue to see glimpses of it in uh, a number of subsequent Loeb issues. Uh, with the return of the Daily Planet, they have um, these huge photos of uh, of old uh, front pages of the newspapers, and through that, you know, you get to see a number of key moments in uh, in the Superman yeah. history. And I thought that was that was that was really cool. It was a nice touch. And to kind of show, like, we're honoring what's come before as well.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's important to do that anytime that you have a, a, a paradigm shift in such an established, ongoing uh, story like this. Because y- you have to honor both the existing fan base but and and try to appeal to newer, younger readers as well. So, you know, as much as you want to move forward, try new things, take the character in different directions, and as writers and artists put your stamp on it, you also want to make sure that you communicate, even if it's subtly, even if it's just in those in those images that we know where we came from, we did our research, uh, we're not trying to disrespect the character, but we do have an obligation to, to move the story forward. So, you know, trust us, go with us, and you'll have fun along the way.
0: Exactly. And uh, so, you know, I want to talk about, I guess, about these first few issues, uh, particularly on on the Loeb side, because there are two main things that really stand out to me. And one is, I thought this was such a a clever idea and it just felt like a very believable way to inject some tension. It didn't feel uh, contrived. And what I'm referring to is we find out at the end of Loeb's first issue that the reason Lex decided to sell the Daily Planet back for the grand sum of a dollar was because Lois (laughs) had made a deal with him that in exchange for him giving the planet back, she would kill one story... Any story at any point in time at Lexa's request. And I thought it's like, oh, it makes so much sense. And it's like, you know, again, it's the sort of thing where you you get why she would do it, but you also get what a betrayal it is and why she would uh you know why she would keep it a secret. I love that whole that whole storyline.
1: I agree. Uh for for the reasons that you stated, but also because it allowed him to plant it here in the first issue and then largely ignore it for large chunks of time. Yeah. Except except when he'd bring it back. And this idea that there was this shadow always hanging over Lois and always hanging over the Daily Planet. And by extension always hanging over Clark and Superman that could come to a head at any moment. You know, it's that classic like mistake from the past that you thought you got away with that's just always there, always in the back of your mind. And as a reader, I felt it. I felt that tension. When is that going to actually come back and bite her? Um, And it's a, like you said, it's a great way to create narrative tension and specifically in a serialized medium to create tension that just builds and builds and lasts and lasts. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant stroke.
0: And it was such a great flip on you know, the typical dynamic where, you know, Clark is the one with the secret or Superman's the one with the secret, you know, now it's Lois carrying something like that. So I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was great. And, you know, I want to say, I know one of the storylines we're going to touch on is, um, you know, what appears to be marital tension between Lois and Clark. And of course it turns out that's not the case. And we'll, I have some thoughts on that, but, uh, (laughs) you know, the exception of maybe that storyline, um, you know, for the most part, you get a, uh, you know, a really fun, I think, a fun dynamic between Lois and Clark across the titles. And, you know, I I love them together. I like them as a married couple. And, you know, to anyone who argues, you know, that marriage ages a character or something like that, you know, I think these are great issues. I think more recently, you know, you see it again with the Tomasi run on Superman and, you know, with Lois and, and, and their, their son, John. But uh, nice. it was great just seeing, again, for the most part, like a healthy, supportive, married team.
1: Yes, and and I think that's precisely why, for me, and it sounds like for you too, the the ruse of the you know the marital problems when again it's it's really parasite in, in impersonating Lois um, that did fall a little bit flat for me. Um, while it's fun to some extent to see Lois sort of sniping at Clark and Clark's bewilderment over that. I, it just didn't ring true to, to the relationship that they have. So if you want the reader to buy it, I think there may have had to have been maybe a slower build up to it. It seemed to come a little bit quickly for me. Um, but the relationship they have is so tight. Um, they, they love and respect each other. Despite a really complicated existence, and have for so long that for her to just turn on him like that, I just I wanted to be in on it, and I just couldn't get myself there.
0: I'm with you, and I want to pick that up in a second. Uh, but let's just take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Submissions are now open for the March season of the Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City, New Jersey. Visit FilmFreeway.com to submit your film now. Also be sure to listen to the podcasts hosted by the festival's organizer, C.J. Cullen. You can find the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast as well as the Cullen on Film podcast via a shared universe network. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. And we're back, and I actually have one more plug that involves you, Scott. So uh, we are going to be kicking off the Digging for Kryptonite companion show, Digging Deeper, uh, on my Patreon page in one week on November 11th. And uh, with Digging Deeper, You know, again, in this main episode, right, we're talking about the run generally. The idea with Digging Deeper is that we can take an issue or two and just really focus on that. And so there's a really cool crossover. Uh, It's Superman 168 and Detective Comics written by Greg Rucka, uh, number 756. So it's this great two-part crossover with Superman and Batman. And that's what you and I will be discussing on the November 11th episode of Digging Deeper. So uh, if anyone wants to give that a listen, uh, I hope that you'll consider becoming a member of my Patreon community. It's patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That should be fun.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh,
0: so I want to pick up uh, where, where we left <laughs> off. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but that's that's okay. Uh, we'll we'll kind of circle back and we can talk about, uh, again, those early issues and, and Y2K, but Yeah, one of the main storylines of the first half of this run is, uh, again, what appears to be uh, very severe marital tension between Lois and Clark, (laughs) primarily from Lois. And to your point, and I think this gets at what I was saying before about the, the idea and the execution, because the idea of... You know, of, of there being this tension if it's done in an organic way. And we just talked about it, a very organic source of tension in the form of the secret that she's keeping. I'm on board with it. But what we got was something a little bit different. And further to your point, the, this whole idea of it coming out of nowhere, very much so. So, and it's funny because as I was rereading this, and it's the, it's the issue of Superman right after the Y2K crossover where this begins, and for the life, I could have thought that there was some sort of inciting incident that that kicked this off. But in that issue, Clark visits Smallville and Ma is just like, oh, where's Lois? And he's like, oh, she didn't want to come. So this thing like really came out of nowhere because at the end of the Y2K storyline, things are perfectly fine. And, you know, and I, I guess, we, well, you had said this before. It turns out we find out in a few issues that uh, Lois had been replaced by a shape-shifting parasite right? And so it wasn't Lois at all uh, over the course of these, you know, two to three months where she's just (laughs) berating Clark, (laughs) saying that she needs space, telling Perry she needs time off from the Daily Planet, uh, going out all night, visiting Lex in his office late at night. And I want to come back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so we we got a few months of this. And again, going back to what we were saying before, you know, all four books kind of had to hit that note. So it was, You know, it was like issue after issue of, you know, Lois snapping at Clark. And again, you don't really know where it's coming from. And I think, again, we ultimately find out that it's Parasite and that's fine. But I think the storyline would have been a lot more interesting if we had seen something that would account for the behavior. And if the behavior had been a lot more subtle, Uh, they really did not use a gentle touch with this. like It was so over the top and it started so quickly that it was just like, okay, clearly something's up here.
1: Yeah, and actually while you were talking, it reminded me of of another part of this that, that didn't quite land for me too, is, you know, especially now knowing that the we're back is referring to the return of the Daily Planet and that whole, you know, supporting cast, to bring that back, to make Lois a centerpiece of it, and then to remove her from it with a leave of absence,
0: seems odd, to say the least. Yeah, it was, it was a curious choice. And, you know, in that, in that issue of Superman where Clark visits the farm, and he visits the farm a lot, which, uh, as a Smallville fan, I, I quite like. And, uh, you mm. know, I know I've talked about this before, and I'll continue to talk about it, but I love, I love the iterations of the character where uh, Ma and Pa are still alive and he has them as a sounding board, in okay. any event. So in that issue of Superman after Y2K where Ma's asking, you know, like, where's Lois? Uh, Clark says, you know, I don't know if she senses that something happened between me and Diana. And he's referencing uh, such a great issue of Action Comics by Joe Kelly, where uh, Superman and Wonder Woman spend a thousand years in Valhalla fighting this never ending war. And on their last night there, there's this moment where something could happen and Clark stops it. And it's it's such a powerful moment. And, you know, the whole thing of, you know, show, don't tell. Right. It's one thing for him to say over and over. I love Lois. I love Lois. But here's the moment, right, of of ultimate temptation, and it would have been perfectly understandable. It would have been perfectly understandable after a thousand years. (laughs) But he stops her and he says, you know, no, even after a thousand years, Lois is the only one. And as much as I always kind of look back at that issue and I'm like, oh, like Clark, he just loves Lois. To Diana's credit as well, she's like, oh, that, you know, that's perfect, Clark. And, you know, they, you know, um, address the fact that they're best friends and they appreciate having that dynamic. It's such a great issue. I, I love it. And, you know, so that's what Clark is referencing when he's talking to Ma. And I think if they had given us any indication that, uh, you know, Lois sensed that something happened, you know, anything, uh, I, I think that, you know, it, it, it just, it would have given the story more teeth, but it just, it, you know, I don't want to say it was confusing, but it just really felt like this was coming out of nowhere, you know?
1: Yeah. What happens as a result is fun enough. I mean, the battle with Parasite and, you know, ha- how it all Ultimately unfolds, and then, of course, you know, once he defeats Parasite and realizes that that had been Lois all this time, then becomes the search for so where's the real Lois, and and that leads to some some fun places as well. I think I mentioned one uh, not that long ago, but um, but yeah, it just it I feel like if you don't get the reader on board with the with the reasons why this is happening in the first place, even when you even if you somehow manage to stick the landing, there's something that doesn't quite work in the story
0: yes and to be clear i'm not saying that (laughs) i wanted there to be actual tension that i didn't want it to be an imposter i'm not saying that it's just that i wish it had it had been more believable because you read it and it's like okay clearly you know she's either possessed or it's an imposter Right. And you immediately come to that again because it came out of nowhere and because the behavior was so extreme, it just felt wildly out of character. And yeah, I just feel like if they had toned down the tension a little bit and if they had shown you something that could be construed as a, as an inciting incident, it would have been a lot more compelling. That's That was my gripe with, uh, with that story.
1: Yeah, compelling and, and refreshing, too, because, I mean, how many times in superhero comics have we seen the imposter, whether it's, you know, a clone or a shapeshifter or, a, you know, it, it, it's a well-worn trope in this uh, in this genre, what would be more refreshing was to really have those tensions come from a true character place, um, because that's not necessarily the trope. Um, I, I think I, I, I'm with you on that. I think I would have preferred... That if they were going to go that direction, I would have preferred that as well.
0: Yeah, and yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they could have they could have genuinely told a story of tension actually between Lois and Clark. I mean, there there are a number of ways that that I think the story could have been uh, more effective. I mean, I guess I will say this though: all my complaints aside, uh, one of my favorite moments. Uh, I mean, you you hit on that that great action issue with with Batman and Superman searching for Lois, and that was phenomenal. Although Batman read a little bit too Rorschachy for me in in that, <laughs> yeah. but I do understand he was fully in detective mode in that, so yeah. I was able to kind of attribute it to that. In any event, uh, but the issue of Loeb's Superman where Parasite finally reveals himself, and this is the issue where Clark is writing the letter to Mon Pa, because you know Lois yes. has left him this note: "I'm leaving you," and he says in the letter as Parasite clocks them and they, they, you know, it comes falling out of the window. He's like, I've never felt more relieved in, you know, in my life. And as the reader too, right. You, you feel that relief. It's like, again, as much as you figure something's up, you know, Hey, you don't know for sure. Right. It's comics. Anything anything could happen. Uh, and then, so to get to that moment of, of pure relief, I think you really feel that, uh, for the character. Yeah. And that's, and
1: that's kind of what we were talking about back in, in the beginning is that, you know, for all the crazy action that there is in, you know, a slate of Superman stories like this, if you could manage to boil it down to those genuine character moments, like if the reader does feel that sense of relief, oh, it's not Lois, um, then then that's the part of the character that rings true. You can do almost anything you want, um, but that all has to ring true. And that's ultimately what I think Loeb, and, and to a large extent, Kelly also, uh, were really, really good at. In this, so there are some things that happen in this in this run where you go, huh? What? I don't. How did we? Uh, and yet they manage to ground it in really, really good uh, characterization. Um, so that's why it stayed as fun a read for me as I, I suspect it did for you as well.
0: And exactly on that note, I'm going to jump ahead a second to Emperor Joker, which is the last major arc, you know, that we're covering in in this episode. And again, that one kind of falls into the category of really cool idea. Didn't fully hold my interest as I was rereading it, but there's an issue of action. Uh, I think it's a halfway, like at the halfway point of of the crossover, where uh, Superman wonders aloud, like, "Have have I really gone crazy?" And it's this, you know. It's a very powerful moment, and and again, exactly what you were saying, like, in the midst of all the craziness going on in this Emperor Joker storyline, where reality's been turned upside down, there was this moment where, you know, you see our hero, like, genuinely wonder and fear for his own sanity, and that was a moment that, like, really stood out to me, more so than any of the zaniness that was going on.
1: Um, I agree. I, I don't remember if I actually read the Emperor Joker storyline the first time around. It felt new to me and I feel like I would have remembered this one probably um, um, but I remember a little ways in to the the first part of it which is a low mcginnis issue um, and, and I made a note for myself that said I have no idea what's going on but I am so in because the art was just still so stellar and at this point McGinnis had been on the title for a little while he really found his groove and I almost didn't care. That it was weird. Um, I will say that on some of the other issues that he didn't draw, I found myself being taken out a lot more because I didn't have the art to hold me into the story. Um, I also felt like it was just it was too big a story for Joker as mm. a character, um, you know, to give him godlike powers to reshape the universe as he wishes. Is I, I don't know. I I had I, I had trouble with it. Um, but I will give it credit for this, that because Clark is questioning his own sanity, um, I think that the writers here did a really good job of putting the reader in that position. Because I think the reader is questioning, am, am I reading a real Superman cut? Is this really happening? You know. And any time I think a writer can put the reader in the position of a, of a character, especially a protagonist, it it connects you to the character more deeply than if you were just sort of passively, passively observing them from the outside.
0: No, that's a great point. And and, I mean, it is at times a disorienting read uh, just as the characters are very disoriented. Uh, You know, again, for anyone who's not familiar with Emperor Joker, you know, the, the basic premise is we start off with Superman in the black costume, which as a, as a kid of, of the nineties, I I enjoyed seeing uh, locked Mm -hmm. up in Arkham. He's public enemy. Number one, bizarro is earth's greatest hero. Uh, uh, Lois is, is basically Lex Luthor. She runs Lane Corp. So basically everything's upside down and you find out halfway through the story that Joker is the one behind all of this. And he accomplished it, uh, by stealing Mixius Pitalik's power and reshaping reality. And so you didn't read this as it was coming out, you said, right? So you might not remember this and I'm even trying to remember all the details, but if I'm not mistaken, they kept the Joker part of this a secret um, because as you might have noticed in the in the story itself, it's, it's actually two storylines. So the first part is called Superman Arkham. And right. I remember at the time, you knew that a, a one-shot was coming out, but it was called Emperor Question Mark. They did not reveal that it was Joker. Uh, so they kept that a secret really until the last possible moment. Now, of course, the entire storyline is known as that, and it's not a secret <laughs> going in. But I just wanted to note that, uh, and for anyone who remembers, you know, reading that the first time around, there was this added component, even though I think... I mean, well, I don't know, actually. And I, I don't remember as a kid if I was like, oh, this is clearly the Joker. I mean, now knowing what happens and being older, like it's easy to look at it and say, oh, clearly, like these were little nods to the Joker. But at the time, and certainly as a kid, I don't know that I necessarily was like, oh, this is going to be Joker. Uh, but certainly they, they tried to build up the mystery around, you know, what this would be. But now it's just Emperor Joker.
1: Yeah, I don't remember the marketing pitch at the time. It's at this point just too, too long ago in the rear view.
0: Did you ever watch the uh, Batman cartoon <laughs> Brave and the Bold?
1: Yes. Uh, not every episode, but uh, a number of them, yes.
0: So I never watched it. Uh, you know, it looked like it was aimed at at a younger audience, which is great. And I actually figured when my son gets a little older, like that would be a perfect thing to watch with him. But yes. as I discovered in the process of rereading Emperor Joker, they did a version of Emperor Joker on Brave and the Bold. And there's no Superman. So it's strictly a Batman story. And rather than involving Mixius Spitalik, it's Batmite. Uh, who course. accidentally gives Joker the powers, but uh the broad strokes as far as Joker reshaping reality and killing Batman over and over, <laughs> which I was actually surprised <laughs> that the cartoon went as far as it did i mean they didn't it wasn't gory, but you definitely there was no mistaking the fact that Batman was getting killed over and over and over uh, but it was actually a really good episode, so uh, you know I would certainly recommend it to you and you know to anyone uh, you know listening to this podcast it was it was uh as far as I know. You know the only adaptation of this storyline. I don't know offhand of anything else. So uh, you know, if if anyone's curious, I definitely do recommend it.
1: Yeah, that that's not one of the episodes I saw, but now it makes me want to go go see it.
0: I want to jump back to uh, this. I got to tell you, I'm I'm enjoying this so much. Uh, it's Same. again, I I read this when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and as much as I'm sure, you know, those of us at the comic shop, you know, we probably talked about it, but I've never had a full-on in-depth discussion with someone who read the whole thing and just reread it. So, <laughs> you know, I've really been looking forward to this in any event, going back to, uh, what a segue here. Cause the question I'm going to ask is, uh, going back to the storyline with Lois and parasite and not to be crude, but, uh, I mean, Lex bang parasite, right? I think that's, that's pretty clear. <laughs> uh,
1: th- that's what it appeared to, to be, to, For me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, because we have that issue, you know, where, uh, you know, Lois, and again, at the time, you know, we don't know what's going on, but Lois shows up at Lex's office late at night. She's putting on the lipstick, and it ends on this note of, like, what do you want, Lex? And then there are subsequent issues where, uh, like, Lex seems troubled by (laughs) the encounter, especially when he finds out that it was Parasite. And there was actually... It's in the trade, so maybe you did reread it. It's the Metropolis Secret Files issue where Hope and Mercy are looking for the the corpse of of Parasite, and they're okay. At, or they're no, they're looking for Lois. Pardon me. Uh, they're looking for Lois. But in the course of their investigation, they visit uh, Star Labs where Parasite's corpse is, and uh, you know Hope and Mercy in their in their narration discuss how the doctor found Lex's DNA on. On, on the body, and they kind of, I think they bribe or threaten the doctor to, uh, you know, toss out those results, so uh, just a fun bit of DC trivia, I guess, oh, but that actually brings <laughs> me to, and again, I don't, I don't want to nitpick or anything like that, but it does bring me to another qualm that I have about this whole <laughs> Parasite storyline, which is, it feels uh, needlessly complex of Parasite. Right? So we, (laughs) you know, we we find out that uh, on New Year's Eve during the Y2K storyline, that Parasite touches Lois, right? And accesses her memories and learns Clark's secret. And I guess it's at that moment that he decides to, you know, kidnap and impersonate her. But it's like, you know, he could have stabbed Clark in the heart with the kryptonite dagger while he slept. (laughs) But instead, he decided to put him through like months of marital strife and. Sleep with his greatest enemy. That at least was for purposes of uh, getting access to Lex's bank accounts, which they, they do establish that. But it just felt, and again, not to nitpick, but it just felt definitely out of character for Parasite. And even by any villain standards, like the, the psychological warfare <laughs> that Parasite <laughs> decided to enact, uh, it, was, it was just a little odd. I don't know. It's hard for me to reconcile with any version of Parasite that I've ever read.
1: Yeah, well it, what's funny is it you know it feels unlike anything you'd you'd really see in a superhero comic in one sense and on another in another, it's it's perfectly in line with with the tradition here. It's basically, to me, like an emotional version, an emotional modern version of the elaborate death traps that like fifties and sixties villains would uh, you know would prepare for the, for the heroes. You know, we saw a lot of them like on the the, the sixty six Batman TV show, where you, you know you are thinking these villains have access to guns and missiles. And, you know, if they just really put their minds together, I'm sure they could figure a way to lure Batman in and just shoot him. And instead they have to chain him up and he's over a buzzsaw. Or there are laser sharks or what, you know, whatever this elaborate death trap. And then of course they leave him in the trap and they leave the room and they assume that it's going to kill him. And, um, you know, this to me, read so similarly you know we were way past the point in superhero storytelling where you could get away with the elaborate death trap but if you could do it on an emotional level you know and really break the character down so that he's vulnerable before you land the killing stroke um that to me feels sort of, i don't want to say believable because i don't know if that's the that's quite the word that we want to go for. But it sounds like it's still keeping well within superhero tradition.
0: All right, I'll go with that. No, you you, you, uh, you make a good case. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> Yay, I win. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was definitely, it was an interesting storyline. And of course, it coincided with Clark exhibiting symptoms of what we would later find out is kryptonite poisoning. But at the time, he chalked it up to the emotional turmoil of his deteriorating relationship with Lois. That actually gave it, I, I did think that gave it an interesting uh, component, right? And that actually was, see, that's an instance where I thought that was kind of clever because uh, it's, it's, it's obviously so out of character that Superman <laughs> would be sick. But then you're like, well, his heart's broken and it's manifesting in this way. Like you, It could be. Right. And then, of course, you find out that he has been poisoned. And then that leads us right into the critical condition storyline. But I I actually like that. And it um, I think, you know, one of the quotes from the issues is, uh, you know, he says, I always thought it was only kryptonite that could that could kill me. Not, you know, not a broken heart. And, you know, so you really do see again, you see the love that he has for Lois. um, And, you know, you see it because the potential absence of it, you know, from from her side is just so devastating to him. So you know, again, there were some aspects of the storyline that I thought uh, were were interesting. It's funny because as a kid, I was really trying to think back on this because reading it now, it's like okay, it's so clearly not like low. It's not Lois, or it's not you know she's not acting herself, right? But as a kid, I can't. It's hard for me to remember what I was thinking at the time. But I will say this: the issue where she, where you know, quote unquote Lois, goes to Lex's office. I remember it felt so wrong to me like it really like it it really conjured a, a you know a reaction in me when i read it as a kid i was like like you know and again it would seem so clear that it wasn't lois but I, you know i guess i didn't make the connection at the time and it just uh you know i felt sick watching that you know
1: yeah and look whether, whether you like uh every aspect of the plot as it's unfolding it really does show the Loeb's masterful hand as a writer, because one of the hallmarks of really good serialized superhero storytelling is that ability to have a sort of a plot, a B plot and a C plot. And so here, you know, you've got a a physical battle with, with parasite, you've got the seeming marital troubles, you've got Lois's shady deal with Lex. And, you know, when, when you're trying to tell your story, you're going to push your A plot to the fore, And then once that has, has run its course, naturally you don't move on to something brand new. The B-plot rises up and takes the place of the A-plot. So, uh, you know, that one runs its course and the C-plot then becomes the A-plot. So in doing this, I think Loeb really had full control over his story. Again, whether or not everything hit exactly right with each individual reader is almost beside the point, but you can can kind of see the structure behind it, which is great.
0: And... And I will also give them this. I do admire the fact that, you know, they were, they created a conflict for Superman that wasn't a physical one. I mean, ultimately, you know, yes, he had to fight Parasite and all that. But, you know, it, again, it was this broken heart. And it's like, how does he fight, a, you know, how does he quote unquote fight, you know, a, you know, a wife who wants nothing to do with him? So it was, you know, kind of putting him through his paces, you know, in a different way than, than we had seen before. So, uh, all right, I'll be a little yeah. bit more forgiving towards, uh, towards that storyline.
1: Yeah. And, and even to to pick up on some of those themes, you know, you mentioned before that issue where um, Clark goes to visit Ma and Pa Kent. And of course, you know, more happens than just that, because the, the conflict in it is that Superboy is there. Mm-hmm. And and, you know, while while what will emerge later is essentially an imposter story We don't know that in this particular issue. And yet Loeb is very subtly laying the seeds for this notion of imposters because Clark's internal conflict throughout the issue is that his parents have taken in Connor and are treating him the way they used to treat Clark when he was younger. And he feels sort of replaced a little bit and, and he, he, he's jealous and he's not He's not above those kind of petty emotions. It's not until the end of the issue where he, he and Connor sort of reconcile. Not that Connor has to reconcile, but Clark sort of reconciles it within himself. But I thought that was a nice touch, too, that while you're, you know, to sort of divert you from the main plot, but also yeah, echo some of the themes that would emerge later. He gives us that issue. I really enjoyed that issue in particular.
0: Yeah, that is a great point. Uh, yeah, and the yeah no, I think you hit the nail on the head. And yeah, it, it was interesting seeing the way he reacted to Superboy being there because it felt very you know on Superman like, but maybe Clark like. I mean, and I, I I think that's where you know when I when I look at this run, both the first time I experienced it and rereading it now, what I enjoy most about it is the the characterization of Clark and the rest of the supporting cast, but particularly Clark and the humanity that Loeb, in particular, infused into, into the book and into Clark. And, again, you see that in the way, you know, the other characters talk about him via the narration. You know, you see that in moments where maybe Clark isn't his best. You know, there are, there are a lot of moments like that. And, uh, again, that's what really stands out, and that's what, uh, you know, I love so much about this this period of the comics. Um, but that was a, I was, I think it was a great point that you made. I want to make sure we hit the... Uh, you know the again the major issues and and storylines yes. and uh, Y2K was their first major crossover right so the the creative teams came on they had about three issues each to kind of do their own thing and again in the main superman title well, actually, I don't know that we even got into this yet, uh, but the the plot of those first few issues was that the son of Mongol arrives on Earth, warning Superman of the coming of Imperiax, who would kind of pop in and out throughout this entire run, culminating in Our Worlds at War, which we'll talk about next time. But, uh, you know, Mongol comes to warn Superman and to train him uh, to be able to take on Imperiax. And it was, that actually I thought was kind of cool, and those training sequences in particular where Mongol's teaching him, like, use multiple powers at once, which... <laughs> It's like, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense, and you know, it's a sort of thing. As I was reading that, it made me think, in particular, of the CW Flash series. And I know, I know, I'm nitpicking here. I know they're making a television show; they have to fill 42 minutes 23 times a year. That being said, like, it always drives me nuts when Barry super speeds up to the villain and stops, and announces himself, and waits just long enough. <laughs> the villain you know to either attack him or get away and it's like you have this amazing power at your disposal use it and for clark too it's like you could do all of these things you know and there are definitely powers that you know you know he doesn't he's not always using super breath for example right and very rarely using them at once so i thought that was kind of a cool it was a cool bit and also just this idea of clark working with someone he would normally see as an enemy i thought was an interesting idea
1: i agree i like that too um and and I forgot that that Imperiex was seeded as early as it is. Uh, I remembered from t- you know twenty years ago that Imperiax showed up in it, our worlds at war, and, and and that was just the story. But um, I was happy to see that that was part of the plan uh, all along. Um, to your point about you know characters superheroes using all the powers available to them, n- never is that more. Um, Sort of frustrating, but also obvious, is when you're dealing with Superman because you know at at most times in his history, Superman can do just about anything. I mean, he can you know he's he's had moments where he could snuff out a star by you know blowing on it, and you know he can fly around the world in less than a second. You know, the idea is that where where really is the physical conflict if Superman could essentially beat any opponent in? a second. Um, So for there to be those emotional beats, for there to be the character moments, you have to slow things down. You have to give the characters a chance to talk at each other Mm -hmm. during the battle, because in doing so it, it, reveals inner motivations. It reveals, you know, some cases the differences between, you know, a character like Superman and Mongol who are approximately of the same power level. And yet the way that they use their powers and, and, and what they want out of, out of their powers is completely different. Um, so you just, you, you know, the rule is, like, you have to have a story. Otherwise, nothing else matters. I get it. I'm frustrated by the same things that, that you are. But, you know, at the end of the day, I forgive those things because I just, I want to see a good story.
0: Yeah, no, I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. And I think, yeah, those, you know, when you talk about the suspension of disbelief, it's like, yeah, you know, you kind of, you buy into it and that's fine. But it was just an interesting idea, I think, to see explored and, you know, kind of picking on what, picking up on what you said about, uh, you know, what, you know, what each of these characters wants out of their powers. It's like Superman isn't out to dominate right so that's probably in part why he's not you know you know firing his heat vision and and the super breath at once and all that but anyway so you know he, he undergoes this training with mongol and then they end up taking on what they believe to be imperiax in space but turns out to just be one of his um advanced scouts but it leads to this great moment where mongol turns on superman of course and we get this great <laughs> lobo cameo out of nowhere and it's just great because it's like well, gee, what would clark do with mongol in that case, it's like, I mean, I don't know, toss him in the Phantom Zone. Like, well, like what would he do? Thankfully, he doesn't have to worry about it. Lobo's passing by. <laughs> but I thought that was cool. Like, that was a fun, uh, you know, a little nod to another corner of the DC universe. Like, I thought that was neat. My favorite, though, I have to say my favorite part of those first few issues is this subplot where Jimmy Olsen takes a photo of uh Superman and, and Mongols' hands together. And again, going back to the humanity, this is not Superman didn't make a mistake. Clark made a mistake. Clark forgot to take his wedding band off. And Jimmy captures this in his photo and really has this dilemma about, you know, do I turn the photo in as is or do I, I alter it? And to show the age of this comic, you know, he he explains to Lois <laughs> that through the magic of digital editing, he actually could remove <laughs> the wedding band. <laughs> And Lois, to her credit, you know, tells him to, you know, tell the truth, right? Uh, but he's such a good pal that he alters the photo. Uh, but the actual photo gets out there. Uh, we find out later, right, it was Lex who who had gotten access to it and leaked it to the Daily Star. So the Daily Star runs this front page story, like, who is Mrs. Superman, right? Clearly Superman's married. He has a wedding band. And uh, yeah, I just love, there, there are numerous layers to this that I really enjoyed. I loved that. Uh, you know, Jimmy made that, made that sacrifice for Superman. I love the, the out that they ultimately came up with, which we can circle back to. But I especially, I think my favorite part is that uh, sort of the button on that little subplot is a Daily Planet rooftop meeting between Superman and Jimmy or Jim as they, you know, as they refer to him because they, there's that respect there. And, uh, you know, Superman reveals like, no, I, I actually am married. Like almost no one knows this. And and uh, Jimmy says, like, oh, you probably can't tell me because you don't trust me. And he's like, no, it's just, you know, for her safety. But it was this nice moment where, uh, you know, he was letting letting Jimmy in a little bit. Right. Not fully telling him the secret, but, uh, you know, allowing him that. and I thought it was it was such a nice touch and a show of friendship and respect. I really like that.
1: I agree. And that's always been a hallmark, I think, of of the both the Clark Jimmy and the Superman Jimmy Relationship, you know, you know, Jimmy, for all intents and purposes, should be should be nowhere on either of their radars, (laughs) and yet he, and yet he's 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 Superman's pal, right? I mean, he's he's the kid who is, in many ways, the stand-in for the original audience who were themselves kids. You know, we can't be thirty year old Superman, we can't be an adult Lois who's dating Superman, but we could be this kid who's Superman's pal. And, and to have Superman or Clark let Jimmy in on some of the adult conversations means that you're letting the reader in on those conversations. You know, you're now part of the crew. You're part of that group. Um, the other thing I always loved about about that, and it was highlighted in, the, in those scenes um, that you just referenced, is one of the strengths of the Daily Planet as a as a supporting cast is that you get to examine issues of um, integrity in journalism, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is, is, has always been badly needed. um, Maybe never more so than right now, but, but so to reread it, it had a resonance for me that I I don't think it had 20 years ago um, where you, Jimmy does want to alter this photo and even Lois who stands to be hurt most by being truthful about it is the first to tell him you that you can't do that. If you're going to run the photo, you have to run it the way that you took it and the ch- let the chips fall where they may. Um, and so, you know, the the solution to that of, you know, Clark letting oh sorry, Superman letting Jimmy in on the fact that he is in fact married I think was a really nice way to resolve it but yet not resolve it. Right. Um, yeah, I, I love that piece too.
0: Yeah, it was it was so great. And again, going back to what I said before about, you know, Lois's secret and, you know, kind of flipping the dynamic where normally it's, you know, a Superman hiding his identity. You know, here, too, it's usually Superman, you know, saving Jimmy. And, you know, here was a case where, like, Jimmy really looked out for his friend. Like, uh, it's very touching. Nice. And uh, as I uh, was getting at before, I like their uh, they're out for this. And I think it was actually in an issue of Man of Steel in in that in those couple of months where, uh, the JLA held a press conference and <laughs> revealed that uh, the what what looked like a wedding band was actually just uh, their communicators. You know, of course. So uh, <laughs> so that was their way their way out of that. But there was an issue of Adventures of Superman where. You know, again, I guess seeing Superman through the the citizens' eyes, where you know people are kind of hounding him, like, "Hey, who's your wife? Who's your wife?" Uh, you know, so that got a little play for for a few issues, but I thought that was uh, that was cool. I mean, of those first f- few months, like those were certainly the you know the major beats that like really stood out to me. Was there anything else that that you wanted to hit on before we get to YJ? Um, yeah,
1: I just thought that the 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 wedding band issue nicely actually set up what would become the Lois impersonated by Parasite storyline because it raises the the notion just of the fact that he is married he has this uh, the long standing relationship and that and that they are bound to each other as both Clark and Superman um And and that's not something that we take lightly. And it's not something that the reader should forget because it's going to be a big deal in a couple of months.
0: Right. Yeah. No, very much so. Uh, And, you know, again, uh, you know, we've touched on the other titles and, you know, certainly in those first few issues of action, you know, that was that Valhalla issue that really stood out to me. And I just want to say, you know, to listeners, uh, we're going to do an episode on Joe Kelly specifically uh, down the line a, a little bit. Uh, but we'll get a little bit more specific on his action issues, and we'll also talk about uh, he did a year on Superboy, he did a few years on JLA, uh, he did a great issue of Wonder Woman uh, where Lois Lane guest starred. So if you're listening to this and you're like, "Hey, I want more Joe Kelly talk," we're gonna we're gonna get to that down the line. But uh, you know, I want to make sure we we touch on Y2K. I mean, I don't know if there's any story that's more dated, like literally and figuratively, <laughs> than Y2K. But you know, it's funny. <laughs> Just like you were saying about the, the, the press and how a lot of those issues in those daily planet scenes are more resonant, you know, now than ever. And even in that Y2K storyline, you know, there's, there's a scene where, uh, you know, there's a local market that's out all out of champagne, which, okay, it's New Year's Eve. People are celebrating and baked beans because everyone's stocking up for (laughs) Y2K. But it's like, look, we just lived and are still living through a period where you couldn't get toilet paper. So, you know, that actually hit home, you know, more so than I thought it would.
1: It did, you know. As I approach those storylines, I I, I, again I remember thinking that you know, good for them for taking advantage of what was happening at the time. I mean, it was it was at the time, and I remember it well. It was at the time of, of. the biggest concern we had and what was going to happen as we had become so much more technologically reliant when those clocks went from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000. Um, People didn't know whether nothing would happen, which is ultimately what happened. But uh, you know, people really thought like the world was just going to explode. I know, you know, there are all these crazy (laughs) theories about what Y2K was going to mean. And, and, and I, I thought, well, a superhero story is a great way to explore those fears, and superhero stories have always taken on the issues of the time. Whether you, you know you're talking about, uh, you know, World War II back in the Golden Age, or whether you're talking about, you know, the Atomic Age at the beginning of Marvel in the early '60s, like, they've always been unafraid to tackle the issue of the day. So this shouldn't be any different. Um, I don't know that it really holds up all that well. Um, I I will say though that. Even in the last 20 years, we've become incredibly more technological. We've become so much more reliant on, on our devices to connect us to the rest of the world and to, to just even perform our, our regular mundane t- tasks. So, you know, if all of that either shut down suddenly, we'd be lost, or if, as sci fi has been, uh, you know, predicting for many, many, many years, uh, if technology overtakes us then, you know, that's that's just as valid a concern. And so, you know, Y2K, it's got its flaws, but I thought good for them for, for tackling it. Uh, the one thing that didn't hold up nearly as well as any other aspect for me was... Wait, the, can I guess before the... you say it? Please do.
0: The computer-generated Brainiac 13?
1: Yes, that's the one.
0: <laughs> oh, man.
1: I applaud them for trying, uh, and it probably was cool at the time but yeah that didn't really hold up
0: so well yeah you know sadly i knew that's that's where you were going to go with that and we did not talk Mm -hmm. about this beforehand (laughs) no (laughs) yeah it's uh yeah so i mean again i agree with everything you said and you know I, i mean i remember reading it as it came out very close you know very close to new year's and um you know, I have fond memories of, you know, my first read through of that story. So, uh, and there's some good stuff. I mean, look at, if nothing else, that's when Ed McGinnis made his debut and that classic cover, uh, you know, of, of oh. Superman with the planet behind him, beautiful. So that's when Ed McGuinness started. Uh, we got, you know, the, <clears throat> the biggest outcome of this storyline was that Metropolis got upgraded by the Brainiac 13 virus. And I'll, let me just say also quickly, because I know this I is- went on record in the last episode as saying that Brainiac is not my favorite. Superman villain. And that's true. That's still the case. Uh, <laughs> I don't hate him, <laughs> but it's just not my favorite. But that being said, if you are going to do a Y2K storyline and the outcome is, you know, you want to upgrade Metropolis, I think Brainiac was the perfect vehicle for it. Um, but yeah, so the the, the ultimate outcome of the storyline is that, uh, again, Metropolis gets this huge technological upgrade. It literally becomes the city of tomorrow. Uh, as a result of the Brainiac 13 virus, which I thought, again, I thought was a cooler idea uh, than than it was executed. Because I think, you know, you look at Gotham, for example. Gotham has a very distinct identity. Gotham is a character all its own. Jeff Johns did a lot in his Wally West Flash run to really build up Keystone City as like this blue collar sort of town, really give it more of, of its own flavor. Uh, whereas Metropolis, like, I don't know if you quite had that as much. And so I think this was a way to like really give Metropolis a very unique identity within the DC universe. It is the city of tomorrow. So I think it was a cool idea, but I don't know. And it's so funny. And I want to get your take on this. It's so funny because I could have sworn before my reread that they did a lot more with the technology in the, in the months that followed, but there's, there's really not a ton. They don't really, they don't really, it doesn't get much play, you know, it's there, but you don't really see as much of it, you
1: know? Yeah, you would think for as big a deal as they made uh, of the story, especially, like you said, you know, this was the debut of the, you know, the new art team uh, on Superman, um, that, that they would carry that forward a little bit more than they, than they did. Um, it's funny, I, you know, you mentioned Gotham City, and if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, right around the same time that these stories were coming out and Metropolis was getting an upgrade gotham was devolving into no man's land which is you know an an interesting sort of return to the first episode i did with you which was no man's land that's right um so you know i don't know whether this was like a dc editorial decision to you know take gotham down while you're sort of you know pushing metropolis up at the same time or if it's just a coincidence that that's how it you know, happened to, to turn out. But, um, you know, it's an interesting development. It made for some fun stories right at the beginning. It's a little disappointing that they didn't capitalize on all the story possibilities. Um, but again, you know, it's so hard to say what went into the process of making monthly comics, uh, especially when you've got four different creative teams on, on, on what is essentially now a weekly comic, right? There's right. a Superman comic every week of the month. That has to be just grueling.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I will say, as far as other things that stood out to me about that storyline, they did uh, troll us a little bit with uh, <laughs> the very brief return of Electric Superman. And, yeah. uh, you know, thankfully it was short-lived. And I think even at the time reading it, you know, I don't think anyone thought that this was, you know, a return to <laughs> to that iteration. But for a brief moment, uh, it appeared that he was uh, Electric Superman again. But, uh, the, the, you know, the other thing that, that really stands out, and this... I guess really this has become a theme in our discussion tonight of, of you know, these, these moments of, of humanity that, like, really pull you in. And and so the story culminates with, and it's, I mean, it's so crazy. You know, you always, you know, you know that Lex is this ultimate villain, but, man, you know, at the end of the story, he sacrifices his infant daughter, Lena, to Brainiac yeah. in order to retain uh, or to gain control over the technology and be the lord over the city of tomorrow. I mean, that <laughs> packed a punch. It
1: did. I mean, look, if anything, it shows that for Lex, there is nothing, nothing more important to him than power. Absolutely nothing. And he he's been a character who generally does not form any real human connections because he has to let himself be willing to abandon any relationships he has if it's going to buy him more power, and the ultimate expression of that is with you know for, with the child. Uh, you know, if if there was ever a moment for him to you know be human and to have a relationship where he's willing to put someone else before himself, it would have been there. And the fact that he doesn't do that specifically so that he can grab and maintain power says a lot about the character and sets again sets up what's going to be coming for that character because he just builds and builds and builds throughout this run until he becomes president lex
0: yeah no absolutely i mean yeah at the end of the day i mean it definitely you know sad to say but it tracks with you know with what we know uh you know of lex anything else about y2k before we uh start to wind this down
1: uh no, I think I've said everything
0: I I, I need to say about y Uh, you know, I know we've already spent a good amount of time talking about the uh, as they collected in trade paperback, the "Till Death Do Us Part" uh storyline right. and and critical condition. Um, there, there is were, one. There are yeah, two yeah, things yeah. I
1: want to add about critical condition. Yeah,
0: though. please. Uh,
1: I while the story as a whole, you know, maybe didn't land with me the way that I'm sure that the creative teams hoped. And I probably enjoyed it a little bit more when I read it originally than I, than I did now. And maybe that's also because, you know, this isn't that long after Superman had already died and been resurrected in, in, in the early nineties. So I I had a pretty strong feeling they weren't going to kill him again. So it was really just a matter of how is he going to come out of this? Um, But there were two really beautiful character moments in the critical condition storyline. And they're not, neither one of them is Clark or Superman. Um, One of the benefits I think of having a Superman story where Superman is sort of out of commission is that you get to focus on the supporting cast. And uh, one of those moments, uh, which I believe is a Jeff Loeb written issue and illustrated by Duncan Rouleau, who was probably my second favorite artist for this run, because he did pop in and out on, on a couple of things, especially an Emperor Joker and then in, in Critical Condition as well. Um, with Ray Palmer, the Atom, who is about to essentially go inside Superman and, and try to fix this kryptonite poisoning. And Loeb could very easily have barreled ahead with all the sciencey tech tech, and have Ray just jump right in. But there's a moment where Ray turns to, uh, I think, uh, John Henry Irons and a few other people who are watching, and he just says, "Can you can you just give me a minute?" And he and he, he turns back and looks at the enormity, and I use that word intentionally, at the enormity of what he's about to undertake, and to give a character who you know, he's a superhero like like all the other Justice Leaguers who should be so sure of himself. And time is of the essence, and yet he knows that what he needs is a moment to collect himself and realize that if he does not succeed, Superman will die again. And he will be not responsible, but he, he certainly will feel the weight of that after the fact. I love that he gave him that moment. And the second moment that I liked probably even more was a Jimmy Olsen moment. Um, Jimmy Olsen is sort of up in an observation deck and you're nodding. You know what I'm, what I'm about to say. And he's looking down at the operating table and he's technically there in a professional capacity. You know, he's covering Superman's illness for the planet and he lines up his shot and he's got Superman sort of green, sickly face, eyes closed on the operating table. And he's about to click that photo and he lowers the camera before he can. And he just sort of mutters, I'm sorry. I know Perry would have loved that shot because it felt wrong to him to capitalize. You know, I mean, it would have sold a ton of papers. So it felt wrong to him to to, for the planet to make money off of superman's illness. I that was probably my favorite moment in the entire run.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I love both of those moments, and especially that Jimmy one. I knew exactly where you were going oh, yeah. with that. And, you know, again, this whole idea of the, the role of, of journalists and, and sort of some of these ethical questions, you know, uh, I'd recently started my reread of the second half of this run and prep for the next episode. And I, so I am jumping ahead here, but it's germane to our conversation, which is, uh, in, in one of the issues right after Emperor Joker, Lois is once again narrating and uh, she kind of gets at this very question and she talks about how, you know, she sort of errs on the side of, you know, always tell the truth. Right. And she says, like, I have debates with Clark and, you know, and she's and she even says, like, it might be because he's so used to keeping a secret identity that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes he thinks things, you know, could or should be held back. It was interesting and kind of ties into you know exactly what we've been talking about. But I, I love those moments, too. And I think, yeah, those are definitely standouts. And it actually leads me to what I was going to say, which is, so in that issue of Superman, we have Ray Palmer narrating. And then um, the issue of Superman right after Critical Condition is sort of like a a little bit of a breather issue in between events.
1: Palate cleanser, yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. And in that one, uh, well, we start off with Lois and Clark in the hot tub. So again, going back to a very (laughs) vibrant, you know, married couple. Uh, But then... Superman asks uh, Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, right, at the time to uh, take him out into space just to sort of test his limits right now that he's back on his feet. And uh, in the course of that, they run into uh, Maxima and, and her her people fleeing uh, their planet. And that's where we find out that the Imperiax threat is actually not done at all, right? So these seeds, you know, continue to be planted and, um, you know, you know we'll, we'll keep getting references like that. But yep. that issue, you know, for me, definitely what stood out was, you know, seeing Superman and not Clark, but seeing Superman through Kyle Rayner's eyes, right? And, you know, we get these great moments where Kyle talks about, you know, kind of not always having the confidence in himself, but seeing the confidence that Superman has in himself <laughs> and in the people around him, you know, really lifts everybody up. So I thought that was a cool issue. And and again, as, for as much as a lot of the Loeb issues were the you know, the humans, like really the, the friends and loved ones in Clark's life. It was cool to get these couple of issues where, you know, you get others within the superhero community. And I feel like this was laying groundwork for, you know, what Loeb would do in Superman Batman, where you had, you know, all of those great moments of Clark and Bruce, like examining each other, uh, through the, you know, their internal monologues, which was, was great. Yeah. And it makes almost more
1: sense to do that in a Superman title than anywhere else Uh, in that Superman was the original. He was was the first superhero. And so to to see how other superheroes view him uh, not only enlightens us about those particular characters, and, you know, Kyle is still relatively young and new to superheroing in in this era. And so to have him and and Superman go out together, you, you know, Loeb plays it this way, but I felt it, I think instinctively, like I would feel completely inadequate, you know, flying out into space with Superman of all people. And yet what's beautiful is at no point in his interactions with any of the other superheroes does Superman make anyone feel inadequate, even unintentionally.
0: And there's even that great moment. I think it's in that issue, unless I'm getting stuff mixed up, where where Superman makes a joke and Kyle doesn't really quite pick up on it. And Superman says, "Is like, is it hard to tell when I'm joking? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, but yeah, it goes to show like, right. That they have such reverence for him that, you know, uh, he's still ultimately just a guy, you know, Uh, But I thought that was a nice, uh, nice little palate cleanser uh, in between Critical Condition and uh, Emperor Joker. And, you know, we've again, I I think we've we've hit on a lot of the main points of of Emperor Joker. But was there anything else Mm -hmm. uh, about that storyline that that we didn't hit on that you wanted to talk about?
1: Uh, no, I don't think so. I just, uh, you know, it was interesting re- reading it. And, and I'm fairly certain that I hadn't read it that first time around. So it was fun. Um, it was weird. And maybe that's the point of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably <laughs> fair. And I mean, I will say, like, it was a fun read as you know, for as much as I might not remember all of the specifics of my initial read as a 13 year old. But you know, I remember it was a fun summer you know when when that came out and again i think it's a really cool idea i know i don't know i think maybe fans sometimes are a little bit split on sort of uh you know mixing heroes and rogues galleries and things like that but i thought it was really cool to have you know joker be at the center of this uh you know it was it was different and uh and yeah it was fun again the like the moment of superman really questioning his sanity that you know that mm-hmm. uh, really stood out to me otherwise yeah, again, it was a fun read. I don't know, like, I don't know that that's a storyline I would go back to, you know, yet again. Uh, it was a cool, pay- I thought it was a good payoff, though. Uh, as, and, you know, we haven't really talked a ton about uh, Batman's role in this, but, I mean, Batman is just yeah. tortured very relentlessly and killed and resurrected, you know, on a <laughs> daily basis. So he really gets put through the ringer. And, uh, you know, at the end of this, when reality is set right, uh, Superman actually takes on, all of those memories, because otherwise Bruce wouldn't be able to function. And that was interesting on a number of levels, especially since we were not, at that point, we were not that far out from identity crisis, where such a big part of that was, you know, Bruce's mind being tampered with. So this was a, you know, an earlier example of that. So kind of interesting to see how it, you know, kind of lines up with with what we know is coming. Uh, And and again, just another moment in that relationship.
1: And I like that they, they really delay Batman's entrance into that storyline. I mean, you know, you see other versions of the Justice League. You know, Aquaman's actually a fish. Uh, the Flash is, gr- you know, grossly overweight and you know, can't really run so well. Um, but, but, you know, you are wondering where Batman is. His absence is quite conspicuous. Uh, and because he is the Joker's archenemy, that makes it even more so. And so when, when it is revealed where he's been this whole time, It does make sense. You know, there is a logic to that, that, of course, of everyone that the Joker would want you to torture at the top of that list is going to be Batman. Um, And, you know, look, we get a reiteration of something we've seen from Superman many, many times is, you know, his his ability to martyr himself, his willingness to martyr himself uh, so that others don't have to suffer. You know, he will take on that pain and suffering so that you don't have to again keeping with the characters. So it's you know it's not that this storyline is a violation of any characters or stories. It just it wasn't my particular taste. Um you know I don't I, I agree with you. I think it's it's a little bit cooler in in concept than it is in an, an execution, but it's fun and it was certainly different from all the stories that had come before it and from what I remember all the stories that are going to come after it.
0: And I will say that Uh, One thing I really did like was the way in which uh, Joker was ultimately defeated. You know, this idea that uh, no matter what he does, he just can't not think of Batman. Batman looms so large uh, in in the Joker's mind. And the fact that that's the key to his undoing when he has the power, I mean, literally to obliterate all of creation. uh, But the fact that Batman, he just can't get Batman out of his head. He can't quit Batman. That's his undoing. I really did like that. It was a good payoff, I thought.
1: Yeah, and Joker, I think, has, has always been one of those villains who is often defeated by himself. You know, he he, he you know, he can't get out of his own way because he, even he sometimes doesn't know what he wants uh, or or can't get he can't get out of uh, you know he sort of can't get the notion of you know batman uh or or the scheme that he has laid that time uh out of his own way that's the best way i know how to say that is he, he everything that he does is not only leading towards defeating batman but it also it also is completely in his own
0: way yeah there's also this really fun uh, meta moment too in the final part where joker addresses the artist of the book. He's like, Hey, <laughs> stop drawing Batman. Uh, so I thought that was pretty fun too. And, yes. it, and again, if you're, if you're going to break the fourth wall like that, I think that's the perfect storyline for it. It, you know, I know I mentioned the brave and the bold, uh, adaptation. I use adaptation, you know, somewhat loosely, although they really did a great job. And, uh, and again, I, I think you would dig it. And, uh, you know, for anyone who, you know, likes the storyline or is curious about it, I do recommend it. But Emperor, the Superman Emperor Joker storyline, I do think that's uh, ripe for an animated adaptation. I think that would be kind of cool. And especially in that case where you have a unified vision and style for the entire, you know, 75 or, or 90 minutes. I think that could be kind of cool. I would I would be excited to see that at some point. I don't know if that we'll get to it, but that would be cool.
1: I would watch the hell out of that, but only if they bring back Gilbert Gottfried as Mixus Piddling.
0: Oh, yeah, you would have to. And, you know, like we've seen Ed McGuinness's art translated to screen for the Superman, Batman public enemy. So if they were able to kind of do something like that for Emperor Joker, you know, I think that would be kind of I I would love to see that at some point, to be honest.
1: Yeah, his art translates really, really well to animation. So, yeah, I'm in.
0: Yeah. And so, with the end of, you know Emperor Joker, that uh, brings us uh, essentially to the halfway point of, you know, this this main period of this run of Superman comics. And so, like I said, in two weeks, uh, we'll we'll you know we'll discuss the uh, the second half, my guess will be Mike San Gregorio. And again, the major arcs uh, within that period were President Lex, which we've touched on already, and I'm excited to get into that. The timing. <laughs> it's fortuitous, <laughs> syncing up with uh, real-world events, and, um, and of course, Return to Krypton, which was an interesting storyline, and Our World's at War, which is really what a lot of this run was, was kind of building toward and became this huge event, uh, so I'm excited to do that. Of course, before that, you and I will do our Digging Deeper episode uh, next week, where we'll talk about that Superman-Detective crossover, so that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, is there anything else about uh, you know, these, these issues that we've talked about that you wanted to say?
1: No, just that I, I'm, I'm really grateful that you gave me the opportunity to revisit them because I don't know, you know, they're sitting on my shelf, but I don't know that it's necessarily something that I would have just gravitated toward. And, you know, revisiting them was really, really fun, especially because they were really my entry into the modern era of Superman. You know, growing up as a child of the late 70s and 80s, naturally, we had the Christopher Reeve movie and I had the Super Friends cartoon. I had the Kenner action figures. Uh, but then I really sort of took a break, you know, I drew Superman in my notebooks constantly, but, you know, I really was not a a follower of the comics and, and this was the run that brought me back in. So, uh, you know, getting to revisit it. And and like you said, getting to talk about it in depth with somebody else who's just recently read it. I mean, that's what a gift. So I thank you so much.
0: Awesome. No, this has been a pleasure. I thank you, you know, for sharing your insight. I mean, this was a fantastic discussion. And I mean, you brought so much to it. And I, I, like I said, I appreciate you, you know, undertaking this, this reading <laughs> assignment. And, you know, you know, I'm grateful to you and I'm grateful to the listeners for, you know, uh, giving me the forum to do something like this, because, you know, it's one thing to sort of have a run that you look to as your favorite and, you know again, it's like, I read this as a kid and it's cemented in my mind as, okay, like that was my favorite run. And, you know, I've continued reading Superman since then. And, you know, there's nothing that, you know, has, has surpassed, you know, that, that period for me. But again, it's one thing for it to sort of be in your mind, but then to really take the time to put it to the test and revisit it uh, is just really a fascinating experience. So, you know, it's, it's been great for me. And, you know, it's funny because I have, you know Death of Superman obviously holds a very special place for me because it was the first but this is my favorite and I think there are a lot of reasons for it I do think objectively they generally were strong stories and like we said I think the characterization was was really spot on and that stands out the most and just for me too the age that I was you know 12 13 14 years old I you know was old enough that I was you know getting a little bit savvier and picking up on a little bit more in the comics, whereas, you know, really as a kid, reading some of those 90s comics, I mean, I was entertained. I don't know how much I was necessarily like really engaging with the material. And I think as I got into my teen years, I was a little bit more equipped to do that. But I was still a kid, so I still think it was easier for me to suspend my disbelief and to just give myself over to the story. And I think it was just like that perfect combination of my age and these stories. And it just, it just fit and it worked for me.
1: Absolutely. And, and it's funny, when I was that age, uh, I did actually pick up a Superman comic. I was at a, I was at a Catskill hotel one winter with my family, and the gift shop happened to have the Death of Superman trade. And it was like, you know, the first trade they produced was like three bucks or four bucks. And it was just those couple of issues. And I forwent the evening's activities, whether it was a comedian or a band or whatever it was. And I sat in the hotel room and I read that thing cover to cover and I bawled like a baby. And that was the absolute first Superman comic that I read. And then I didn't read anything until these issues here.
0: Right on. Well, thank you again for being part of this. Thank you to all of our uh, listeners for tuning in. Make sure that you come back in two weeks. And remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production, art by Greg Schiegel, music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to listen to My Comic Shop History, available on most major podcast platforms. Sign up for exclusive additional content, including the Digging for Kryptonite companion podcast, at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato, and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.